This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the Sufi Heart Podcast with Omid Safi, featuring teachings and stories from the wisdom of the Islamic tradition. Omid invites you to a meditation on the transformative power of love and recalling the necessity of healing our own hearts through healing the world. If you'd like to support Omid's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Omid. Hello. This is Omid Safi, and I would like to welcome you back to the Sufi Heart podcast. We are going to be having the second of a two-part series on fireside chats with Rumi. So thank you for joining us. Uh, the Sufi Heart, Heart podcast is always brought to you by Illuminated Tours, uh, spiritual tours to Turkey and Morocco which are open to everyone. So if you like what you are listening to and want to go deeper into the subject, feel free to join us on one of those tours. Last time, we started to talk about how Rumi's circle would have these occasions called sohbat, where people would gather around Rumi and they would ask him a question and then he would spontaneously launch into a session of tapping deep into his own heart and weaving together um, some mystical insight, occasionally poetry, sometimes humor, uh, to, to answer the audience. And people would describe their experience of sohbat, these mystical discourses, as having a little taste, just a little tiny taste of what it might be like to be in the presence of one of the prophets. Um, so imagine that to listen to one of these fireside chats with Rumi gives you just a little taste of what it would be like to sit with Christ, to walk with the prophet Muhammad, or to meditate with the Buddha. Uh, we don't oftentimes have the questions that people are asking Rumi, but we've got his answers. And from his answers, we can have a sense of what the question might have been. So we're going to start this time by talking about the question, sometimes even the problem of religious pluralism. Uh, in this case, we do have the question. We're told that a Turkish leader's son comes into the gathering, and he says, you know, if we can just get this Muslim and that Christian to get married together, then their communities can be one, and we can have uh, a unity among religions. So it seems from the question that the questioner was vexed by a dilemma, something that he experienced as a problem which is one of the issues that we see in so many different parts of our own world today, which is, is the fact that we've got different races, different religions, different spiritual paths, um, at times each of them claiming to have a certain measure of truth to themselves, is this a problem? And what do we do when sometimes the followers of these different paths 
seem to not get along particularly well. Well, we did not invite, we did not um, invent cosmopolitanism. We didn't um, make up the whole opportunity and at times challenge of human beings of different faith orientations uh, coexisting side by side. This was something that existed in Rumi's time. We know from the description of Rumi's life that he himself is a Persian-speaking Muslim. He is living in an area which still has a Greek Christian majority. The rulers of the area are Turkish-speaking Muslims. They're also Armenian Christians. They are Kurds. There are Arabs, there are Jews, and other ethnicities. They're all mingling together in the city of Konya. And in fact, the very name of the city of Konya comes from an older Greek word, Iconium, meaning icons. Um, so Konya, or Konya, itself was the city of icons. It is a city that is steeped in a rich Christian and Muslim heritage. And these communities are living side by side. They have seen rule change from hand to hand. And they're trying to figure out how do we exist together. And so this one Turkish ruler's son has the plan that says, well, you know, if uh, the Greeks have suggested that if we just marry our daughter to somebody else, then all of religion is going to be one. And let's see how Rumi answers that. He oftentimes starts his answer by addressing people at the level of where they are. He doesn't just immediately go to that highest or the deepest of mystical levels. No, as the Prophet says, um, speak to people at the level of their understanding, at the level of their intelligence. And so he starts with people at their level. And since the questioner is at the point of religious difference, and in fact seeing that as a kind of problem, Rumi starts right there. And his response is the following, and I'll read it for you. He says, when has religion ever been one? It has always been two or three, and war has always raged, even among followers of, a, of the same religion. So how are you going to unify religion? So on one hand, he starts out by saying that in this earthly life, in the life that we are sharing, it seems that there has been Tension. There have always been multiple spiritual paths, and perhaps this is even what is intended. Um, furthermore, he goes on to say it's not only that different religious traditions at times have disagreements among themselves, you also see that the followers of the same religious tradition are fighting. And indeed, in his age, it wasn't only that there were some Sunnis and some Shias who would. Um, have disagreements, actually the more common fights oftentimes would be within particular understandings of Islam. So, for example, a very common um, form of tension was between and among what you could call denominations or legal schools, one of them called the Shafi'i school and one of them called the Hanafi school. And the followers of these two schools would at times have some tension with one another. And so Rumi begins by saying, well, you know, religion's always been multiple and there's always been tension among them. So how are you going to unify them? But then, because he's Rumi, step by step, he takes you by the hand and he guides you along this path. And he says, in this world, yes, there have been tensions, but he goes on to say, and now I'm going to read from him again. On the day of resurrection, it will be unified. Religion will be unified. But here in this world, 
it is impossible because everyone has a different desire and want. Unification is not possible here. At the resurrection, however, when all will be united, everyone will look towards the same one. Everyone will hear and speak one thing. So what is he saying? He's saying that in the day of resurrection, we're all going to be attuned to the divine presence. We're all going to be in pure adoration of God. And when you are standing beholding the presence of God, at that point, you're not going to be turning around and asking to yourself, um, how did you get here? Which path did you follow to get to this point? No, you're just going to be absorbed in the presence of God. And so is the person to your left, and so is the person to your right, so is the person in front of you, and so is the person behind you. We are all going to be in that state of awe, in that state of pure beholding of the beloved. We're going to be so lost in the beloved that these questions such as, uh, did you come here on this path or on that path, will seem immaterial. So on this earth, yes, this is the world of multiplicity. Perhaps it's natural for us to be somewhat lost in that, uh, in that state, but uh, in that world to come, there's going to be unity, but not an artificial unity, and not a unity that is imposed through a kind of scheme and plan and design. And I think this is the part that touches my heart, not a unity that will come through one religious tradition imposing its will on the others. It will not come by the followers of Islam or Christianity or the Hindu traditions converting everyone, or heaven forbid, heaven forbid, um, by punishing, marginalizing, and worse towards human beings of other faith traditions. No, unity will come in that world, in that world, when we are lost in the adoration of the beloved. Okay, that's, a, that's certainly a much more um, important and insightful, mystical uh, understandings. But if he stopped there, he would still not be fully Molana Rumi. So he takes one more step. And after you're reading a little bit more, he comes back to the example of the person, Imam Ali, who is generally seen as the inheritor of the mystical wisdom of the Prophet Muhammad. So Ali is in the Shia tradition. He is the first Shia imam, but also among the Sunni Muslims of Rumi's time period, he was seen as the gate through whom one would enter the knowledge of the Prophet. Rumi himself is a Sunni Muslim, but he very much approaches Imam Ali as that fully realized, mature human being. Uh, and this statement that the Prophet represents the city of knowledge and Ali is its gate um, is one that was very beloved to the mystics of this time period. So Rumi goes back to Ali. And he quotes the following statements from him. If all the veils were lifted, I would not be more certain. In other words, Ali is in such a state of adoration, presence, certainty with the divine beloved here and now, that if all the thin veils between this world and the next world were to be lifted, it would not change Ali's standing. 
this is part of Rumi's teaching. You know, the name of our podcast series has been the Be Here Now Network, which the late Ramdas, of course, made famous. And that's very much in accordance with the teachings of the Sufis. They don't want you to wait until some other world to be with God. They want you to be with God here and now. Right where you are, right where your feet are, right where you're taking this breath right now, right in this moment where the breath has entered your chest and before you exhale it. Here and now. So what is Rumi saying? He says that for the mystic, he goes on to say, for them, the resurrection is immediate and present. For the mystics, the resurrection is immediate and present. So let's go back to what he's been talking about, of this issue, this challenge of multiplicity of religions. Saying that for the mystic, religion is important because the path is important. You honor the path. The path is the way that leads you to the water well. It is the way that leads you up a mountain. But there might be many ways of getting to the mountaintop. I might go to the right and wander through some woods before ending up at the mountain. And you might take the path on the left and circle back around through a rocky terrain to get to the top. And another person, perhaps with a different temperament, could be doing rock climbing and going straight up till they get to the top of the mountain. And once we get to the top, oh, what a view. We have this panoramic view that we can turn around and around and around and marvel at the beauty of the mountaintop. You can see it, can't you? And when you're standing on the mountaintop and when you're turning around and looking at this panorama that is all around you, when you're in that state of adoration, at that point, we're not asking the person to your right and to your left, which path did you take? Part of what Rumi is telling us is that if as the seekers of the spiritual path, we are children of the moment. And that again, of course, is what the Sufis were called. Bintul waqt, ibnul waqt, a child of the eternal now. If we are born in this very present moment, if we are experiencing the beloved in this very here and now, in this one breath where all the eternity is present, well, then we are resurrected in this moment. We are in adoration in this moment. We are gazing upon the face of the beloved in this moment. And there is no waiting till some cosmic tomorrow to be one. So at that level, if I do the work on my own self to be resurrected in the divine, and you do the work on yourself, then we can each be resurrected. And at that level, none of us would be arguing over the path because we would all be in adoration with the one that the path brings us to. That same discussion is something that he continues in the next teaching that he has. Um, remember that among his other specializations, Rumi is a master of law. His day job is as a religious scholar where he's teaching at a university, at a seminary. And what's the main topic that is taught in a madrasa? in a university or seminary, it's law. 
So in a daytime, he's essentially a law professor. And at nighttime, he's a poet and a lover and a mystic. And all day and all night, he's a seeker. So this language of what is necessary for the proper observance of religious rituals is something that he's quite familiar with. And someone asks him, what's better than the ritual prayers? So he's used to answering questions about what are the criteria to make the prayer be proper. It's things like making sure that your body is washed, making sure that you're standing in a certain place that is clean, making sure that the place that you pray has not been illegally obtained. So you haven't stolen land from orphans, is one of the classic examples, in order to be able to perform your prayers. And these are some of the kinds of statements from the Quran that one would say for the proper performance of prayer. And there are two things that Rumi talks about as being essential for prayer. And here he parts ways a little bit with external scholars whose main concern is with ritual. And he goes to the heart of the matter. So let's see what he says. At one point, this is in a story that his son quotes from him, uh, a person comes to him and Rumi says to him, you have not prayed, my son. And so the person goes in the corner and very quickly stands up and bows down and prostrates himself and stands up and bows down and prostrates himself and does the cycles of prayer and comes back to ask the question that he's really there to ask. And Rumi looks at him very lovingly and says, my son, you did not pray. And the man protests and says, oh, but I just did. He says, no, no, you did not pray. So he goes back and again he stands up and he bows down and he prostrates and he stands up and he bows down and he prostrates and says the statements perhaps in a mechanical way just to get it out of the way. And he comes back a second time and again the second time Rumi looks at him and says, my son, you did not pray. Sends him back and everything in these stories usually happens in threes. So a third time Rumi sends him back. And when the guy comes back a third time and he's like, but I've been doing my prayers. And Rumi says, you said the words and you went through the motions, but you had no huzur. There was no presence. There was no presence in your prayer. In other words, part of what Rumi says is required for prayer is for you to be wholeheartedly present. And when you are present to yourself, then God is present to you. This goes back to one of the sayings that we hear from time to time from Sufis, have your heart be where your feet are. Have your heart be where your feet are. It sounds like such a simple truism. Of course, my heart is right here. See, I'm right here. My heart is right here. But they say, no, no, um, your feet are right here. You've come to the right place. You've come to do your prayers, but your mind is wandering all over the place. You're thinking about all the things that you have to do and all the items in your inbox and all the tasks that you left yesterday and all the nervous work that awaits for you tomorrow, you are everywhere except here. And that in order to pray, you have to be present to yourself. You have to have huzur. It's one of the reasons why many of these mystics offer you techniques, practices for becoming present. One of the simplest ones on the Sufi path is to monitor the breath. 
to become aware of the breath entering your chest, expanding your chest, and releasing it. You notice that if you just pause long enough to take that breath in, you can try it now. One of the first things that we notice is that our breath deepens. Your chest gets filled with more and more air, and you become aware of the fact that you've been breathing in such a shallow way. Your heart rate slows down. Your breath gets deeper. What if you were to do this a few times every day? What if a few times every day you were to pause long enough to become aware of your own breathing and your own breath? What if the breath connects you to the body, the body connects you to the mind, and the mind connects you to your spirit? That for Rumi, is one of the necessary elements of prayer. In order to be present with God, we have to learn to first be present with ourselves. The second thing that he says goes back to that element of religious pluralism. So in this sohbat, in this discourse, someone asks Rumi, what's better than prayer? And Rumi's answer is, well, faith is better than prayer. Because you only pray five times a day for observant Muslims, but your faith is uninterrupted. Something may come up to excuse you from prayer. You might be traveling, or you might be bleeding, or you might be sick, but your faith is continued. Then he says something even more extraordinary, and I'll read this for you. Prayers differ according to religion, but faith does not change by religion. It states its focus are immutable. Hmm. So if you watch the prayer of a Muslim and the prayer of a Christian and the prayer or meditation of a Buddhist, yes, their forms might look different. But Rumi's answer is that the faith that animates them and the presence that it invites are actually the same. That's a really extraordinary statement. That's a really amazing statement that all of us have the same adoration, the same faith, the same relationship with the beloved, even if the shapes and forms of our practices are going to look remarkably different. And it does give some assurance that these forms are not random, that these forms themselves might be something that has been chosen by God, that they have been blessed, blessed indeed by the practices of saints and masters and teachers over the course of centuries. And um, there's something sanctifying about these forms. But 
what is behind the form is also important. He goes on to say some of these very radical spiritual insights, which today uh, would probably get you into a lot of trouble if you made a habit of saying them too loudly in too many contexts. But it's remarkable to hear someone as beloved as Rumi, someone who is arguably as influential of a Muslim figure as there has been after the Prophet Muhammad, so casually drop these pearls. So Rumi is someone who is a master of the Quran, the Muslim scripture. He is so intimate with the Quran. By some measures, there are thousands of references to the Quran in his poetry. You really cannot fully um, grasp the symbols and the metaphors and the meaning in Rumi's poetry without understanding these thousands of references that he has to the Quran and to the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. If you were to ask, um, Muslims today, well, um, what language is the Quran to be read in? Probably a hundred of them, hundred of us would say, oh, it's the Quran only when it's in Arabic. And as soon as it's not in Arabic, then it's no longer the Quran. It represents only a um, translation. It's an interpretation, but it's no longer the Quran. It's only the Quran when it's in Arabic. And if you were to push just a little bit, um, so are you saying that God spoke Arabic? People would hem and haw. It's like, well, we're not, oh, I don't know what you mean by God speak Arabic, but the Quran is the word of God. And the Quran is the word of God, and it's only the word of God when it's in Arabic. Okay. So here's what Rumi says. For him, the Quran is divine speech, and as God is eternal, so is the word of God, so is the speech of God. So in that sense, the Quran is also eternal. So what does it mean to speak of an eternal divine speech? being expressed in a language like Arabic, which obviously comes into being at a specific moment in history. So in just two sentences, Rumi drops this pearl. The context of the story is that he's having a discussion with a Quran reciter, and he says, there's a guy who is reciting the Quran, and he can recite the form of the Quran really beautifully, but he doesn't seem to really get the inner meaning of the Quran. And um, this is what Rumi tries to mention to the guy. He says, well, and I'll read this section for you. In the time of Musa, Moses, peace be upon him, Isa, Jesus, peace be upon him, and the other prophets, the Quran existed, that is to say, the word of God existed, it simply was not in Arabic. The word of God existed, but it just wasn't in Arabic. So he's saying that the word of God is, if you would, in God's language. And at a certain point in time, it becomes expressed in our language, in human language, so what had been the divine speech and divine language through an act of grace and generosity is rendered in a human form. But this Quran reciter who takes things quite literally, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, Rumi himself says, this is what I tried to make that Quran reader, Quran reciter understand. But then I, was, then I saw that it was having no effect on him. So I left it. So I left it. 
I didn't argue with him. He's not here to win arguments. He was trying to point out a truth that the word of God existed even before it took the shape of Arabic. That divine truth existed before there was a humanity, before there was a language, before there were particular expressions and, if you would, containers of that divine truth. But if a person isn't getting it, well, uh, there's no point in arguing with them. And this is very consistent with the insight that Rumi has a little bit later in the same fireside chats. What matters is to get to the destination. So he says at one point, um, think about the pilgrimage, the grand pilgrimage to Mecca. People come to Mecca from sub-Saharan Africa. They come from Egypt. They come from Syria. They come from Yemen. They come from Turkey. They might come today from Europe and North America. They come from Iran, Pakistan, and India, and Bangladesh, Malaysia, and Indonesia, from Russia. They come from Australia. They come from the four corners of the planet. Who knows? Maybe there's some unseen beings that even come on pilgrimage. They're coming from different roads, and some of these roads are coming towards the east. Some of them are coming towards the west. Some of them are coming up north, and some are going south. The roads might appear to be at odds with one another but they're all pointing towards the same destination. And this is one of the insights that Rumi himself has. He says at this point, Although the path may differ, the goal is one. Do you not see that there are many roads to the Kaaba? Some come from Anatolia, some from Syria, some from Persia some from China, some across the sea from India, from Yemen. If you consider the ways people take, you will see great variety. If, however, you consider the goal, you will see that all are in accord and inner agreement on the Kaaba. Inwardly, there is a connection, a love, an affection with the Kaaba, where there's no room for dispute, that attachment is neither infidelity nor faith. It's not confounded by the different ways of which we have spoken. All the dispute and quarreling that were done along the way while one was on the journey, when you reach the Kaaba, it becomes obvious that the dispute was over the way, while the goal was the same all along. And this insistence that Rumi has is one of the insistences that we get from many different mystics. Look to the heart, look to the intention, look to the beloved that followers of different paths are adoring. Let us not spend this one wild and precious life in argumentation and disputation. We have so many stories of this in Rumi's own lifetime. Uh, we know, as we talked about it, that uh, Rumi society was multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-religious. And people of his age, just like people of our age, would at times get caught up in disputations and arguments. And um, how sweet are these accounts where you see him get out of this cycle and look to the heart, look to the inner level. Um, there are two almost back-to-back -back stories that we get in Rumi's life, which I find so endearing. Um, they represent 
two people that he comes in contact with, different personalities. Um, there's one time that he is talked about having met a Christian priest, a very loving, devoted person. Uh, a priest has traveled all the way from Constantinople, what is today Istanbul, to see Molana Rumi. And we're told that he comes uh, and he asks for where can he see Rumi, and his heart is just burning with fire and with desire for this one whose teachings have reached him so far away in Constantinople. And he sees Rumi, and out of respect and veneration, he bows down in humility. And he stands up to start asking his question. And he says, and I saw that Rumi was bowing down to me. So the monk says, oh, and he puts his head back down. And he says, I stayed down for a minute, and then I raised my head to start asking him my question, and I saw that Rumi was still bowing down to me. So I put my head back down again. <laughs> and uh, the monk says, 33 times I lifted up my head, and 33 times I saw that Rumi was still bowing down to me. And eventually the monk rips his shirt, rips his robe. Right? This is like the ultimate medieval task of, ah, I cannot take this anymore. This is too awesome. This is too much for me to bear. And he says, where do you get this humility from? And Rumi only answers, this is the way of our sultan, meaning this is the way of the prophet. Uh, you are a creature of God. If I do not show you this respect and love, to whom would I ever show it? So that's one story. Right? It's one example of respect and love and tenderness and devotion. There's another story which could have had a very different ending. This one is told from the point of view of a Jewish rabbi. And it's a guy who was a master of disputation. There were also rabbis in Rumi's circle, very learned, very logical, systematic mind, uh, extraordinarily sophisticated method of disputation. It's almost like a chess game. And this guy had come with a whole argument that was laid out in his mind. I'm going to ask him this question, and that question could have two possible answers. And then based on that, I could ask him this follow-up, and eventually I'll checkmate him here and there and here and there. And uh, so he was engaged. So he was prepared to really be engaged in an almost endless disputation. And this is the kind of example of, for example, in, in the New Testament, you hear Jesus sometimes getting up from these kinds of arguments. Uh, Jesus, of course, himself also being Jewish, um, coming from that same culture. But he rises above it. He literally gets up and he goes, I must be about my father's business. Uh, I am not sent here to engage in this endless disputation. So going back to Rumi's story, in that particular narrative, we see that uh, the rabbi asks Rumi the first question, and this is the uh, softball question. This is the soft curve, the easy question, which is, um, which religion is better, yours, meaning Islam, or ours, meaning Judaism? I thought, well, uh, surely he's going to say Islam, and then I'll ask him the follow-up question. And uh, Rumi senses what is in uh, this person's heart, and it's not perhaps a desire to um, achieve adoration of the beloved, but it's to engage in endless disputation. So when the rabbi asks the question, uh, so um, which one is better, your religion or mine? Rumi pauses and smiles, and he simply says, but of course, yours. And the rabbi says, yes, good, right. And wait, what? And Rumi says, but of course, yours. 
And that's the one possibility that the rabbi had not prepared for. And he's looking back over his beautiful argument, and the one possibility that he had not been prepared for was that Rumi would say, well, of course, your religion is better. And Rumi looks at him and says, have a beautiful day, have a blessed day. And he gets up and he leaves. All of these stories um, are examples of the insistence on being present with the Divine Beloved, uh, on looking at the goal of the path rather than the path, looking at the presence, the sacred presence that's being cultivated through the ritual, and not merely the external proper performance of the ritual, and the one in front of whom we are to stand in adoration. So at the end of the day, whether he, he is speaking to an audience which is exclusively Muslim, or if it's an audience that is uh, made up of a diversity of Muslims and Jews and Christians, uh, it's about getting to the heart of the matter. It's about returning us to that state of adoration, that state of presence, returning to that state of love. So let me end by reading for you one last quote from these fireside chats. This is one in which Rumi is talking about in that same day of judgment that we've been talking about, how everyone is going to be um, rewarded for their acts of piety and righteousness. Um, and this was put in the model of a scale. And to this day, if you travel in Asia or in Africa or um, Latin America, India, some places, you see um, shopkeepers where you go to buy some apples and they put the apples on one side of the scale and perhaps a one kilogram weight or a half a kilogram weight on the other side and they see whether the two match up. And, uh, you know, the, the typical etiquette in Muslim societies, once the two have matched up, um, you add one more apple to the bag so that uh, you're sure that if you err, it's on the side of mercy. It's on the side of graciousness. Uh, and I've witnessed this with my own eyes ever since I was a child in this part of the world. It's a very tender reminder that, yes, we're striving for justice, but let graciousness and mercy and kindness have the last word. And in the way that the Quran talks about the Day of Judgment, um, there has to be justice, because surely on this earth we don't see justice. We see too many criminals running free. We see too many acts of injustice going unpunished. Um, we even remember, some of us remember Dr. King talking about wrong forever on the throne. Seems like everything that's wrong is in a position of power. Um, so there has to be a day of judgment to come, a day of compensation and recompensation to come. So what does Rumi say? Prayers, fast, and alms will be brought forth on the resurrection day and placed in the scale, in the scale of balance and justice. But when love is brought, it will not fit in the scale. So the root of the matter, the heart of the matter, the principle of the matter is love. And when you see love in yourself, make it increase and grow more. When you see love in yourself, make it increase and grow. So, friends, thank you for joining us on um, this week's 
Sufi Heart Podcast, and this has been the second of our two fireside chats with the beloved Muslim mystic Molana Rumi. Uh, if you've enjoyed this, uh, please feel free to go back to our other podcasts that we have at the Be Here Now Network. There are programs on Rabbi Heschel and Vincent Harding and Attar and Ahmed Ghazali and Kharaqani and so many of these great Muslim um, giants and mystics, in addition to Jewish and Christian giants and mystics. And um, I invite you to come back. And uh, may this love that Rumi talks about, may it increase in you, may it grow in you, may the presence linger with you, may you return again and again to that presence. Until then, uh, may you be well, may you be happy, may you be at ease, and may light and love abound in your heart. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.